Well, good evening. Welcome in. We're going to be turning tonight again to the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you would, if you brought your Bible, if not, there's some in the seat pockets in front of you. We're going to be, Lord willing, at the end of the eighth chapter, we're going to be wrapping that up, and we're going to be picking back up again in the ninth chapter to make it to verse 6. But as you make your way uh, that direction, let me just remind you as we go through a quick overview that this book of Ecclesiastes is the last book in the life of Solomon. So he's lived this, this life of extremes, this life of extreme wealth and extreme experience, and this is the last of his writings. We've got the Song of Solomon at the beginning of his life. We've got Proverbs as he hits kind of in that, that stride of middle life with his, the pinnacle of his success. And now here we are in the book of Ecclesiastes as he's really looking at his life in review uh, or in the rearview mirror as he, as he peers back at things. And the first six chapters you can kind of sum up as uh, Solomon is writing it from a hedonist standpoint. He's really writing it uh, after experiencing everything he can from pleasure, uh, women, uh, even religion, uh, politics, money, power, all these things he's tried to experience. And at the end of them, the result he's found is hevel, vapor, this Hebrew word for, for vapor that we've talked about week in and week out. And so, you know, in this first six chapters, he's, he's Solomon the, the crazy man, Solomon the guy experiencing everything. Perhaps you see him out riding his moped like Nacho Libre. I mean, he's just hair in the wind. He's letting it all fly. You know, we don't know anybody like that in Farmington that rides a moped, you know, through town. I'm sure nobody can think of anyone at all. I'll leave that lay. But I will say Nacho Libre did have a really awesome mustache. I'll just leave that alone, though. But now here he is, he's a college man. He's, he's educated now. And so we see this, this transition from uh, Blutowski there to now he's become Solomon the moralist. So beginning in chapter 7, we see him taking a, a moral stand. Now he's actually looking at people experiencing all these things and all these, these evils and these atrocities, and he wants to address them from the moralistic standpoint. Like, I can't believe how the righteous are treated, Right? But at the end, what he finds is even from this moralistic uh, viewpoint, even though he's traded in his crazy uh, moped in for a minivan, and by the way, if Solomon was going to drive a minivan, it would probably be a souped-up, jacked-up minivan like that, right? He might even drive a big black conversion minivan, you know, if he was really awesome. (laughs) Which, by the way, uh, we've aptly now named Black Betty, just because... Because every time she drives by, I want to go, whoa, Black Betty, lamb, lamb, lamb. But we can't sing any more of the song because there's a curse word in it. But we stop right there. So, but that's the kind of minivan that Solomon would have drove, I think. So, uh, but the end result, what he comes uh, down to, once again, is all of it is hevel, vapor. It's all a complete waste. It's vanity. But it's important to remember, and what I want to put up here on the screen for you, is the state of mind that Solomon is in. So as we look at at the uh, section of uh, the book of Ecclesiastes tonight, let's remember the state that he's in. He's living under the sun. He's trying to experience everything he can, whether it's moral, whether it's uh, pleasure-filled, whatever it is, he's not turning his eyes to the Lord. And I say that because uh, in... The ninth chapter, when we get to that point, you're going to see uh, some uh, verses that uh, certain religions or even cults, you want to say, would try to make doctrinal stands based on. 
And so this is a book that's important for us to understand the state of mind of the writer because we have to be very careful making a doctrinal position in this book because he's coming at it from such a skewed viewpoint. It's the same thing if you were to make a doctrinal stand out of the book of Job, for example. Right? Job makes some wild accusations. And really, the issue is uh, Job's coming from a very distraught state of mind, where Solomon's coming from a depraved mind. Job is coming from a place of uh, being completely distraught. And so again, you'll see certain religious cults try to make doctrinal uh, decisions based out of the book of Job. But if you remember right, how does God address Job? In Job 38, verse 2, what he says to Job as the Lord is addressing him, he says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Right? So if you came from a small town in Illinois I'm from, you could say Job is talking out of his hind end, right? That's pretty much what God's saying. Who is this guy talking out of his hiney? He doesn't know what he's talking about. And so we want to keep that in mind as we're making our way through this section of Scripture is the mindset that Solomon is in. So without uh, further ado, I've got it on and nothing. Look at that. Okay, next slide, please. And so without further ado, there we go. Okay, let's pick up in verse 16 of chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. So what Solomon is saying here in this uh, final portion of chapter 8 is that I've looked all over, up and down, high and low, through science, if you will, through business, to try to understand the things of God. I've tried not sleeping because I've studied so much all day and night, and yet you, I cannot grasp it. I can't get my hands wrapped around it. And so uh, what I put up there is that even the best minds in the world have struggled with understanding what makes our world work, what makes our universe work. And the one uh, person that I would call your mind to that's, that's more modern, uh, a modern thinker, he just passed away in March, actually, would be Stephen Hawking. So Stephen Hawking is one of the foremost, or was one of the foremost scientists in all the world. And uh, even historically speaking, he was one of the foremost thinkers from the realm of science. He was actually uh, named, the, I think I'll get this right, the Lucasian Professor at the University of Cambridge. A very prestigious title that he held uh, for 30 years. This is like the most prestigious mathematician physicist hold this title. In fact, he held it longer than almost everybody except one guy that you may have heard of who held this position for 33 years. That guy was named Isaac Newton. So he was in pretty good uh, company, pretty smart guy. And what he said, though, in looking at the world and looking at and trying to understand just how things work is this quote here, that in a world full of chaos, politically, socially, and environmentally, how can the human race sustain another hundred years? So he poses this question. And this great thinker of our time, his answer was, I don't know. <laughs> That's it. That's what he came up with, was I, I don't know. And so we've got this perplexing issue of how are we going to continue to sustain ourselves as we're basically destroying ourselves every step of the way. And these great minds 
don't know what to think. Now, Hawking was also an avid atheist. In fact, uh, the next bullet point I put up there says uh, that he asserts that if there was a God, then we would know his mind by now through science. And since we don't know God, and since we don't, God must not exist. So his position on atheism was that by now, throughout human history, we should know enough through the sciences and through our own intelligence, we should know enough about God to understand the mind of God. And since we don't, there must not be a God. Now, I am not that intelligent, so I'm going to tell you how I take this, is that I drive a white Suburban. And I like my Suburban very much, uh, but I don't, if I don't want to acknowledge the designer, I'm basically, if I were to say, I don't understand everything about my Suburban and everything about how it works. I don't know how every electronic impulse and how every piston fires. I just can't get my mind wrapped around it. So therefore, there must not be any designer. No one created my Suburban. I think I walked out into the garage and some oxygen and some carbon and some iron must have collided together in the middle of the night and wham, out popped a truck. That's the only thing that can explain this, right? So if I were to say that to you, you'd say that's completely preposterous. And yet, here's one of the great thinkers of our time, and this is what he's come up with. That since we can't understand it, it just must not exist at all. So I have another uh, confession to make to you. Uh, that sitting here tonight, uh, I am, in fact, and this is going to come as a big surprise to you, uh, I'm a nerd. I'm a geek, right? Now, you can't tell that because I've got this rugged uh, physique and because I'm also wearing what we call nerd camouflage. It's called plaid, right? Because no nerd would ever wear plaid. So this right here is guarding the fact that I am, in fact, a nerd. So in being a nerd, I love math. I love mathematics. Always have. I find it fascinating. And one of the things I love about math is that universally, it, there's always an answer. That no matter what, no matter what the problem is you're trying to figure out, that at the end of the day, you can always go back to mathematics because there's always a black and white clear-cut answer. It goes past racial boundaries. It goes past ethnic boundaries. It goes from country to country that no matter what, mathematics is always this language that spoke throughout the world consistently. Two plus two is always four, right? So in college, I'm taking uh, my final math course uh, for my engineering degree, and the final course I had to take was differential equations, diff EQ, as us cool math guys call it. That's right. I'm looking cooler by the minute now that I said diff EQ. And so in differential equations, you're basically trying to solve for multiple variables on both sides of the equation uh, at the same time. So these problems would take you know, upwards to an hour at times if they give you a complicated enough problem. And in fact, I would have tests that would just be one problem. That'd be it. You'd have to work the whole thing from start to finish. And at the end, you can't read it up here uh, on the screen probably, but what I found is that in this course, it was possible to get down to the end and realize there is no solution. <laughs> There's no answer. That the answer is actually, there is no answer. I'm like, this is the crappiest class ever. I'm relying on math to always provide a clear-cut answer. And now here I am in my last math course I have to take, and I realize that you can work an hours-long problem, and you can have the solution be there are no solution or there are infinitely many solutions which is just as bad of an answer. There are infinitely many solutions. But you understand, this is where science gets us every time. 
it always comes back to this. That there's always another question that can't be answered. There's always another problem that they can't figure out, even though they try to come up with a workaround. And what Hawking would say, and what he did say in one of his quotes in 2006, is that he's just going with the simplest answer, that there must not be a God. Well, I don't know about you, but that looks like one complicated, stinking answer to me. It looks like I'm spending a lot of time trying to figure out how God doesn't exist rather than grasping how he does. And so this is the issue Solomon's having. And uh, I'd like to flip back to the left just a little bit to the uh, book of Psalms as, look, as we look at what his dad had to say about it, King David. So in Psalm 139, as David is trying to wrap his mind around all these things of the universe, and, and I want to be clear uh, especially to, to the kids that are in here, it's not a bad thing to question things. It's not a bad thing to wonder why stuff is. And science isn't bad either. Um, but this is what David writes in Psalm 139. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Right? He was overwhelmed, like the song we just sang. But see, the issue and the difference here between Solomon and his dad is Solomon was overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed by everything in the world. David was overwhelmed by God. And it's a much different response. You're able to be overwhelmed with a smile on your face because David goes, you know what? This is too big for me. Can't figure it out. It's got to be the Lord. And have a smile and walk away going, I just, I'm not going to get it. One more place I want to take you is the pen of the Apostle Paul as we uh, finish off this section. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33, which um, eventually we'll get to on Sundays, one of these days. Someday we'll be in the 11th chapter. When we, when we get there, we'll read this verse. 11.33, Paul says, And oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. How unsearchable are his ways. I cannot figure it out. But he's not coming again. He's not coming at this from a place of disappointment. He's coming at this from a place of joy. Because I want to ask you this last question on this slide. How big would God be if we could figure him out? If you could completely understand what a disappointment that would be, right? When we get to heaven and go, you know what? This is okay, but I figured that all out back down there. Instead, we're going to get there and it's going to be like, oh man. I didn't know. And I, I do believe this. I've come to understand, or at least my way of understanding, is when we get to heaven, we're not done learning yet. Do you understand? We're going to go up there, and we're going to have the rest of eternity under the greatest teacher ever, Jesus, and he's going to be the one instructing. He's going to be the one laying this stuff out. And step by step, day by day, we're going to be able to learn. And that's glorious, right? We're not going to show up and just go, yep, I know everything. This is awesome. So thank the Lord that he's so big that his ways are past us finding out. All right, let's go back to Ecclesiastes, and let's pick up in the ninth chapter. In verse 1, For I considered all this in my heart. 
so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. But know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the heart of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts. And while they live and after they go to the dead. So Solomon is talking about here is the great equalizer. And I don't mean Denzel, even though he was a pretty great equalizer. He's talking about death. (laughs) But this thing happens to everyone. It's the constant out there. It doesn't matter if you're big, little, tall, short, black, white, purple. It don't matter. You're going to die in the word of the old dogs, right? You're still going to die. And so we try to avoid it no matter, right? We try exercise. We try dieting. Well, I don't so much. But people do. People have heard try dieting. And yet it still takes place. And so I want to share a couple statistics for you as you're thinking about this. First of all, do you know that 11 people per year die from shark attacks, unprovoked shark attacks out in the open oceans? And so uh, I don't know about you, but there are lots of folks out there that are afraid then to get into the water because I might get attacked and eaten and die from a shark. That's not a great way to go. If I had to pick my top 10, that ain't making it. So instead, I'm going to be that person that, that lays back. I am not going to get eaten by a shark, but I will sit here and watch as you get attacked by Jaws and taken down to your uh, bloody, wet death. You just go for it. I'm going to sit over here on the beach underneath the palm tree, and I'm going to check uh, out what's happening. I'm not getting in the water. Maybe that's some of you out there. Well, if that is, do you realize that 150 people die annually every year from a coconut falling and hitting them on the head? So you are 15 times more likely to die from a falling coconut as you're sitting in the shade tree mocking the people out in the water that are swimming with the sharks. You're going to die. That's what's going to happen. So no matter how much we try to avoid it, and I shared this statistic with Angela. She didn't like it. But do you realize that smokers and non-smokers have the exact same mortality rate? 100%. You're all going to die. And so this is where Solomon's coming from. He's looking at this, and he realizes that this is a great equalizer, that we're all going down, and I don't like it. He says this is an evil thing. And so he continues to, po- to point out the fact that the good, the clean, the unclean, he who sacrifices, that this happens to all people, whether they're righteous or not. So he's almost coming to this conclusion that, that I don't know how much God loves us as he's looking at this from this point of view. So I want to share with you then in in the book of Malachi, if you turn to the right, it's your last book of the Old Testament before you get to Matthew, even though they're separated by 400 years, they're also just a few pages in your Bible. So in Malachi chapter 3, the Jewish people are asking a similar question. They're, they're now, uh, they've been brought back out of Babylonian captivity. They've reestablished walls in Jerusalem. This is approximately 450 uh, B.C. that this is taking place. So it's some 600 years after the death of Solomon. It's some 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And this is what 
uh, we read here in Malachi 3, verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoke against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? That we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. So, so the people are saying, listen, we're crying out to you, we're trying to serve you, and yet there's wicked people that are still profiting. And the Lord's response in verse 16 is, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. And I want to point out this next verse. And they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then they shall again discern between righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and who does not serve God. So what God's saying there is, listen, there is going to come a day where I'm going to make it very, very clear who my jewels are. And you could translate jewels another way. You could translate it special treasure. I'm going to make it clear. And on that day, your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to understand it. I've been long-suffering for a long time here, but if you're worried about the righteous being punished, why do bad things happen to good people? Just wait. Give this thing some time to play out, and you're going to see just uh, what the difference is between the righteous and the wicked. So I want you to hold on to that as we move on, uh, and we'll come back to that here in just a few minutes. All right, back to chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes in verse 4. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. Well, that sounds pretty promising, right? There's hope if you're living. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Okay, I don't know what you do with that. A living dog is better than a dead lion. That sounds about right. Now, the dog he's referring to probably isn't your cute little poodle like what my mom has, you know, Coco the poodle, with the curly hair that sits and plays fetch with the kids. Probably not that kind of dog. He's talking about a mangy, nasty old dog that's running around eating scraps, like the junkyard dog. That's the kind of dog he's talking about. And that's better than a lion. Now, you remember a lion throughout the Bible and, and even throughout history is really considered to be regal and royal and, and proper. So he's saying it's better to be alive and be a nasty, mangy dog than it is to be a lion who's passed off the scene. Now, now you begin to get an idea of how Solomon's mind might be twisted just a little bit. So then in verse 5, he goes on. For the living know that they will die but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. So what he's saying here in verse 5 is a, a section of Scripture that is often grabbed a hold of by the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they use this as proof for soul sleep. So Solomon is saying, when you die, that's just it. You're going to go down in the ground, all memories wiped out, everything's wiped out, and you know nothing anymore, and there's no reward. Now, 
What I want to point you to instead is in Luke chapter 16, let's look at what a greater than Solomon has to say about this subject, that being Jesus. And so in this section of Scripture, this is a parable of the rich man and Lazarus, a story that many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with from Sunday school. But in this section of Scripture, you've got uh, Lazarus, this poor beggar, so poor that he's uh, eating the scraps outside of this rich man's house. And this rich man is, is incredibly rich. In fact, verse 19 says he fared sumptuously every day. I'd like to fare sumptuously. I didn't get dinner, so that sounds pretty good. But uh, Lazarus is stuck eating crumbs off this man's table. And it just so happens that both of these men die, and they are both taken uh, away to Sheol. And it says there that the rich man lifted his eyes in Hades, and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So now all of a sudden we have this uh, doctrinal position of soul sleep, and we just go into the ground and we're wiped out, and that's just it. All memory cleaned out, it, it begins to have some issues as Jesus is sharing this story. Because it appears that not only does the rich man have consciousness, but he even has memory. He looks so far off and he sees Lazarus. He knows Lazarus. And what I think is even more interesting about this story is he knows Abraham. Now Abraham would have been alive thousands of years before the rich man. And yet he knows who he is. So I'd contend that your consciousness uh, when you pass off from this life to the next isn't uh, not only do you still have consciousness and memory, but you have an even greater consciousness and even greater understanding. And you could point back to spots in Scripture like the Mount of Transfiguration. As Jesus is there, he's been transfigured. There's Peter, James, and John. They're up on the mountain. And what, what does Peter get all excited about? He's excited because here's Moses and Elijah. Now how in the world does he know they're Moses and Elijah, right? There's no name tags. So again, we see that as people are transfigured, there is somehow, I don't understand it, this greater understanding from a conscious level. So uh, this is the, the point that I wanted to point out to you, though, in this story is Jesus is sharing this parable that not only do we go uh, uh, into this next life, but there is consciousness and there is, if you continue on in the story, what the man, what the rich man goes on to beg for is, please send Lazarus back so he can talk to my brothers. I have five brothers, and I don't want them to come to this place. So now we see that even past this life, there's not only consciousness, that there's then emotion. This man is upset. He doesn't want this thing to take place to them. So friends, what I'm, I'm trying to share is that, that the next life is a very real life. It's not just something fictitious. It's not something that we just talk about for fairy tales to get people to do what they're asked to do. But no, it's very, very real. And it can be very real in a wonderful way or a not so wonderful way. So uh, the next thing that Solomon mentions, though, is that there will be no rewards and yet, if you look through your New Testament, what you'll find is there's actually five different crowns listed out. The crown of life, the incorruptible crown, the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness, and the crown of rejoicing. All crowns that we can uh, hope to one day uh, receive. Now, I know we're not working for a crown. We're not trying to, trying to achieve these crowns. But I don't know about you, but if I'm standing in line and somebody tells me I'm getting the crown of rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. That's awesome. Place that thing on top of my head. I'm going to do the crown of rejoicing dance. Got the crown of rejoicing. Bump, bump, bump. The crown of righteousness. 
oh, another one down. I don't think I'll be singing Queen, probably, in heaven. But I will probably do some type of crown of righteousness dance if uh, I am able to receive that. It's a wonderful thing, right? The promises are completely different than Solomon's skewed viewpoint is. So uh, where I wanted to end up is with this question. How do I view life, uh, my life? How do I view my life? What position am I in to look at life as I look out? And then how does God view me? So one last place I want to take you is in Matthew 13, verse 44. One, one last parable. I shared with you in the previous slide in the book of Malachi that God calls his people a jewel or a special treasure. And what Jesus shares here is this parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew 13, verse 44. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now I've heard that parable uh, interpreted like this, that a man finds salvation, this wonderful treasure, and he goes and he gives up everything for this treasure that is salvation. And that's a beautiful way to paint that picture. It's a beautiful way to translate that. You can take that if you want, but I want to share with you uh, possibly an alternate way to translate that. I believe that the man is in fact Jesus Christ. And I believe that that special treasure, that hidden treasure in the field is the believer. That that's the thing. It's you, it's me. That's that special treasure. And finding it hidden in a field he didn't just go and dig up the treasure and bring that back with him. No, that's not the way our father works, you see. He went and he sold everything and he bought the whole stinking field. <laughs> it ain't good enough just to get this little patch. I want all of it. So biblically we know uh, as we look at parables that, that the, the field or the ground is often the world, Right? So Jesus Christ bought the entire world. He bought good, bad, the righteous, the unrighteous. He bought it all for you, for me, for his special treasure. And if that's the viewpoint you can come away with tonight, I think it really it changes things. That's the viewpoint that Solomon missed, right? He, he didn't view himself as a special treasure. He, he really was so busy searching uh, through all the, the treasures of this world, everything under the sun, that he missed what was taking place in heaven and the way God actually viewed him. He sold everything. He emptied himself completely to buy me back. And I know it's a, a Wednesday night, and maybe this is a little weird, and we don't like to talk in church, but um, would you just say that with me? He sold everything to buy me back. He sold everything to buy me back. So if you're in here tonight and you've got a sin issue that you're battling and you're working through it, you know Jesus and you know him as your Savior, but you're, it's working on you. I want you to know something. He sold everything to buy you back. There were weeds probably in that field. 
There was grass way up tall in that field. It was reaching up to the heavens. He searched out to find the treasure down in the ground. He sold everything to buy you back. If you're in here tonight and you're tired, you're just wiped out. You're like, Lord, I don't know that I've got a lot to give. I'm feeling pretty exhausted right now. I want you to know this, that a jewel doesn't actually do anything. What does a jewel do on your finger, right? It's just bling. And what he sees in here tonight is a whole lot of bling going on, adorning himself with this bling. He sold everything to buy you back. He gave all of it up for that very thing, that, that bling. And if you're in here tonight and you don't know him in that way, I want you to understand that, that it's not just all the Christians that he did this for. No, check it out. It's in the, it's in the singular sense. A hidden treasure, a jewel, singular. He would have done it even if it was just you. It's not treasures, it's not jewels. It's jewel, it's treasure. You're it. He sold everything to buy me back. And it changes the whole narrative of what we're looking at tonight. It would have changed Solomon for sure if he would have come to grips with this before he passed off the scene. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this section of Scripture. Lord, thank you for considering us your jewels, Father. There is most certainly nothing, nothing any of us can do to deserve the life you've promised. And so here we are, Lord. We, we, we can't be used for food. We can't be used for uh, getting work done. We're just treasure. Treasure has no value except in the one that pays for it. And Lord, if we're to take this thing seriously and to understand that if you were willing to give up everything to buy us back, then that's how valuable you see us. Father, it really does change things for us as we consider that. So Lord, I, I pray that your word would be heard, that ears would be opened. Lord, thank you uh, that you pour your spirit out upon places like this on Wednesday nights for people that are, that are a little tired after a long work day. I praise you tonight in Jesus' name.